Welcome to Policed in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr Vicky Conway and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. To be honest with you, you didn't go to the hospital. You didn't get checked. And it's a he said, she said situation. And that was one of the things that really stuck with me is that was her attitude. She didn't write anything down. She didn't ask me to make a statement. She never contacted him. That was it. We're back with a new series. And this week, we address the difficult topic of sexual violence. It's one of the themes I've most wanted to cover. And we've taken our time to try and do it right. Kayleigh Payne bravely, clearly and powerfully tells us about her experiences, plural, of going to the Gardaí as a survivor of sexual violence. There has been an increasing amount of discussion and debate in Ireland in recent years about how the police and the criminal justice system responds to sexual violence. It's essential that in all of these conversations we keep the experiences of victims and survivors in our minds, really listen to what changes mean for them And so we're incredibly grateful to Kaylee for sharing her story with us. If you are affected by these issues or concerned for a loved one, there are plenty of organisations you can contact and we'll provide those details at the end. Kaylee starts by telling us a bit about herself. I'm Kaylee Payne. I'm 34, mum of one in Westmead. Growing up, she had next to no interaction with the guards and had a very positive expectation of their work. I was trying to think when was the first time in my life I had any interaction with the guards. And actually it was, I think I was 18 and I I went to the guard station to get a passport stamped. And that was the first time I ever had anything to do with the guards. You know, I think it was the first time I was ever even in a guard station. I'm from a quiet family. None of us have ever really had any dealings with the guards apart from that kind of administrative thing. And I think my my uh, impression of what the guards do is if anything happens to you, you go to them and they fix it or they, you know, pursue the person who did any sort of harm or whatever. You know, that's that's a very juvenile but simplistic um, impression most people have of what the guards do. And it's only in the last few years with other dealings with them that I've realised how complicated and convoluted it can be once you start any sort of, um, I can't think of the word now, it's gone. Uh, process. Any process. With, there, thanks. With with the guards, if you go to report something that really is just the beginning of quite um, an unpredictable journey ahead of you with with the guards themselves and where that might lead outside of your your initial report um and it's not at all what i would have expected as she will outline kaylee has experienced both child sexual abuse and rape as a young woman my first experience in a guard station was actually reporting the rape it was 11 months after the rape had occurred in 2005 and it was devastating. I had gone into this guard station in the town where the rape had occurred, half thinking I was going to report, not 100% sure because I was very nervous. I was on my own. I was only 19. And I saw a female Garda and I thought, okay, it's a female Garda. I can talk to her. You know, I, I, I know I felt more comfortable when I saw her. 
and she was completely dismissive. She didn't even take notes. There, there was literally just um, a record on Pulse of me being there, but nothing about the rape that I had discussed with her or the harassment I was going through because of the rape from the, the, the person and his friends. I remember leaving. I was only in there for about 20 minutes, but I remember leaving thinking, I'm on my own. She doesn't believe me. She doesn't think it's serious, as in if she does believe me, she doesn't think that the, it's really that big a deal. And OK, I'll just have to get on with it. I was really taken aback by a 19 year old finding the strength to walk into a guard station on her own and say, I've been raped. That's an incredible thing to do, knowing how vulnerable it'll make you in the course of your own recovery. In the Rape Crisis Centre statistics from 2019, less than 20% of those who come to them for assistance report to the Gardaí. And that's a selective group that have already taken the step of seeking help. Rape is, in fact, one of the most underreported crimes worldwide, with general studies advising us that about 10% of victims report to the police. This is despite the fact that the Savvy Report of 2002 found that 40% of women and 28% of men experienced sexual violence in their lifetime. There are lots of reasons why people don't report, and one of those is a fear of not being believed, or that it won't be taken seriously by the police. Another big one is the fear of being blamed, that it'll be suggested that you led the person on or contributed in some way. There are three different things at play which have to be considered when we think of why so few sexual offences are reported to officials. First is social stigma. We can talk about this in terms of what are called rape myths, ideas or images we all have in our head of what rape really is. That it's what a stranger does down an alleyway. That rape is about desire. That women who drink, take drugs or dress in a certain way are asking for it. That if she didn't resist, it wasn't rape. That if she didn't cry straight away or run to the police, it isn't rape. That women claim rape when they're ashamed by their own actions. All of this is untrue. You're much more likely to be raped by someone you know. It's about power, not sex. Some freeze or submit in the moment, and submission is not consent. And people respond to trauma in highly individualised ways, so their behaviour afterwards is not indicative of anything. There is no true response. But these are all things that our culture and society mould us to believe. And these beliefs prevent us from seeing what's really happening. And what's worse is that so many of those who experience sexual violence apply these myths to themselves, blame themselves, or assume that this is how others will think of them. The second thing at play here is police culture. We've talked about this before in different ways. I've mentioned that police occupational subculture is a set of values or beliefs that are transmitted through the organisation. And these beliefs, even if unconsciously absorbed, shape how police use their powers and exercise their discretion. This culture has been found to be fairly consistent internationally. We can see some variations, but there's something about policing, the power centred in the organisation, that means these values run through the police organisations around the world. One of those values is machismo. Policing a scene is a tough, hard job for real men. It's a hyper-masculine space, which is bound in a lot of what we might call toxic masculinity. Sexism is rife. The homogeneity is evidenced in the contempt for homosexuality and the scale of sexual boasting. Alcoholism is high. Sex and drinking are seen as part of being both a man and releasing the tension of the job. 
This all explains why women are so underrepresented in the organisation, but also why gender-based crimes like domestic and sexual violence have traditionally been so poorly responded to by the police. A serial rapist preying on innocent women and girls can fit with the police culture and allow the officer to be something of a protector or a saviour. But the young woman who was drunk at a party in a short skirt? Well, traditional cop culture is less concerned. And as one person told the researchers on the Savvy Report, I was made to feel it wasn't a sexual assault. I was phoned a few days later. Garda stated, you were seen on CCTV footage kissing this man. I was devastated. A kiss did not encourage a sexual assault. This machismo in police culture is evidenced by libraries worth of research and is part of what must be challenged. And the third aspect is the legal system, including both the laws themselves and how it is all operationalized. Herman wrote in 1992 that the contradictions between women's realities of rape and the legal definition of that same reality are often so extreme that they effectively bar women from participation in the formal structures of justice. Women learn quickly that rape is a crime in theory only. Combine the social stigma and the police culture and the problems in the legal system and those are some pretty enormous barriers which can be put in the way of a victim or survivor. I asked Kaylee to talk us through that brave decision to report in the first place and as she opened up it just becomes all the more harrowing. So yeah like I said the rape itself happened on Christmas Eve in 2004 and it was the 25th of November the following year when I went to the Garda stations and, and there was a lot of reasons why it took that long. Um, I think initially when the rape happened, it was my boyfriend at the time in a group of friends that was quite close-knit and, and very dominated by his older brother. And my very first people to tell about it were the female friends in the group. And it was it was as I said, it was Christmas Eve when it happened. It was Stephen's Day when I next saw them. And that's when I told them about what had happened on, on Christmas Eve. And the lack of support from the girls was shocking, um, devastating, and made me feel like well, maybe I'm overreacting. I, I questioned myself a lot. I, I, I thought it was, I didn't even know how to express what had happened to me I didn't say rape I, the words I used were he forced himself on me I, it took me a long time to use the word rape you know and the consequences of me telling my friends one of them who was going out with with the brother of the the, the man who raped me the consequences of telling them were pretty severe in my social circle um so there were rumours about me going around. There was bullying constantly in school, outside of school. Um, there were teachers being told things about me and calling me out of class. I was trying to do my leave insert. I was about to come up to my mocks and I was failing miserably. I was a good student, but it really had a bad effect on me. And I had no words to express what was going on. I couldn't make sense of it in my, in my own mind. It was, And I had nobody to talk to. I didn't tell my parents immediately because I was afraid my dad would go and kill him. I mean, that's genuinely, I was afraid my dad would go and confront him and then be beaten to a pulp by all the lads. You know, I, I didn't want that. And that would be, I mean, I'm, I'm mom, I would kill anybody. So, I, you know, but it was a genuine concern of mine. I didn't want um, anything happened to my family. And I, then I kind of said, I didn't make a conscious decision, but, but what I did was I tried to normalize everything. And I spent months right into the summer just 
not pretending it didn't happen, but trying to gain some sort of normality back, trying to hold on to the friends that I wanted to keep while also dealing with like serious harassment, pretty bad bullying, a lot of intimidation, right? Right up into my house, things being thrown at the window, calls through the night, lots of stuff happening. And I think it was like September, October of 2005, things had had really gotten so bad. And I had a different boyfriend at this stage and he witnessed one night where my phone just constantly kept, kept ringing from a private number and it was them, you know, I answered initially and it was them calling me names and, and all sorts of stuff right through the night. And he said, you should really just go to the guards. And I said, okay, I better go to the guards. And, and I did, so that, that was why I went. It had just gotten too much. It's so horrendous to think of a young woman, barely an adult, going through something like this. It makes me think of the likes of the Belfast rape trial and that also powerful line from Louise O'Neill's book, Asking For It. They are all innocent until proven guilty, but not me. I'm a liar until I'm proven honest. So I went and I said, well, I I knew to myself, if it's a guy in the Garda station, I'll just talk about the harassment because I would I was also mortified to even talk about like anything. I, I just couldn't. I was so embarrassed to go in and talk about anything in relation to sex. But when it was a woman, I did have that kind of, okay, no, I can I can tell her what happened, you know, and why there's harassment going on. So, you know, that's what I did. I walked in, walked up to the um the counter, and she took me behind um the counter like through a door and into this kind of open area office. And there was only herself and another guard in the station. I think it was during the week. It was like a Wednesday or something. And the other guard was over on a computer working away. So she just sat me down at her desk um, and asked me like, you know, well, what's going on? Why are they calling you on the phone? And what's going on? You know, basically what's this all about? And I, I told her about the rape and I told her some of the more gruesome details. It was one of the first times that I actually said out loud what kind of rape it was and um that was hard because I hadn't even said that really out loud um to anybody and she said to me that um yeah but she looked that was like a year ago and I said well yeah and she said well to be honest with you you didn't go to the hospital you didn't get checked and it's a he said she said situation and that was one of the things that really stuck with me is that was her attitude she didn't write anything down. She didn't ask me to make a statement. She never contacted him. That was it. No victim of any crime should be treated so dismissively. But there are certain crimes which have such an indelible impact on victims and cause trauma which can be reinforced, triggered or amplified by others' behaviours that there needs to be even greater care taken. Like we've discussed in relation to domestic abuse previously, sexual violence is a crime which has traditionally received poor responses and investigations from police. In 2014, the Garda Inspector published a report on the investigation of serious crime by Gardaí. In relation to sexual violence, it found, for example, that there were huge problems with how crimes were being classified on Pulse, with crimes often being classified as less serious than they should have been. And a third of those which have been incorrectly classified as attention and complaint, meaning that they were not in fact crimes at all, were sexual violence reports. There was late recording of crimes, and that was a significant issue, including for sexual crimes. They found evidence of an incident where an indecent assault had the language around indecency removed, so it was instead recorded by the police as a physical assault. 
The inspector found that Rank and File Guard E were investigating rapes, and not detectives. Detectives were far more likely to investigate fraud, burglary and traffic offences than they were to investigate sexual offences. There was no formal review process for undetected sexual assaults. And they found cases going back to 2002 that had not been solved, cases that weren't updated on Pulse and cases that simply hadn't been sent to the DPP. And they found that information provided to victims needed to be improved. And let's not forget, Kaylee was also reporting harassment here. Um, as far as the harassment and the phone calls and stuff, she just told me to change my phone number. I left kind of thinking, OK, well, that's it then. You know, it, it did. It, it was such a short stint in the Garda station, but it had a massive impact. Like I said, I'd say I was 15, 20 minutes in there. But, you know, it did it did have massive repercussions. What were those repercussions, do you think? Well, I think chronologically, I tried to stick it out in, in Mullingar. I stayed for another 11 months again. I think it was October when I, I actually left. I got very ill. I ended up breaking out in a rash and things like that. Um, I got really bad problems with my stomach and I was hospitalised in October then. The, the harassment hasn't stopped. I went to a solicitor in the summertime uh, 2006 and got cease and desist letters against him and his brother just for the constant, you know, barrage um, of stuff that was coming in. And and that didn't make any difference. Um, I ended up in hospital and I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. And um, that was enough for me. I, I was so unwell at that stage. I was so afraid. I was so stressed that I decided to leave Mullingar. And I've never gone back to live there. And I wouldn't because of that, you know, I, I moved to Dublin. I just cut ties with everybody and I moved to Dublin. I asked her if it would have made a difference if the Gardaí had responded differently. Maybe the only difference is that everyone who would have been interviewed would, it would have been a much fresher memory for people. When they're interviewed there uh, a few months ago, you're talking 16 years later. It's quite a difficult thing to remember when it's not even something you experienced yourself. Um I might have even had more information um, than I did in the end. I don't know if there, maybe there's things I forgot about as well. That's kind of the only thing I can see being different. But but the other thing as well, and, and one of the things that the investigator who did actually take this on last year said to me was that even 15 years ago, there would have been this, this um, attitude generally within the guards that if you're in a relationship with somebody, and you're in a you're in a, a relationship that's you know sexually active. They they wouldn't really take that too seriously if you go in complaining of sexual assault, or they they'd be more reluctant maybe than you know the, the random boogeyman in the alleyway kind of sexual assault. So now no, I don't think it would have made a difference. I think the only difference it would have made to me if the guard had been more professional and taken a statement and launched an investigation and all that stuff I think my recovery from a trauma point of view might have been different and that's a hugely important point and indeed it is because of unhealed traumas that Kaylee has gone back to the police more recently in 2018 I had Evie and she she was born after quite a long time waiting for a baby um but it was a traumatic birth. I had a lot of health issues and 
I really struggled in hospital after that um, and was diagnosed with postnatal PTSD, but also the, the doctors questioned whether I had ever had any experience with abuse in my um, in my life. And I had, I had uh, experienced child sexual abuse at the age of seven, but I'd also experienced a rape at 18. Um, and it re- really surprised me that this was coming up just after the, the birth of my daughter. And it really, really didn't sit well with me, how much of an impact that was having all these years again later. Um, and in my recovery postnatal, I, you know, gradually came to the uh, decision that actually, do you know what? I think it's time that this was properly dealt with. I think I'm going to have to actually report this properly. Uh, I've always avoided it for loads of reasons. Um, and I think I'm going to have to actually ring the guards and, and figure out what I'm supposed to do. Do the right thing, you know, do the thing you're supposed to do. It didn't sit well with me that, for example, there was a paedophile out there who very likely had done this before me and no doubt continued after me as well. Um I was no longer comfortable being silent about that. Her traumatic birth triggered old wounds, as is often the case. And once she'd mentioned it, it had to be pursued. Because it was a child uh, sex abuse case and I had I had mentioned it to doctors, they were, you know, they were mandated. They had to report it to Tusla. And I was hauled into Tusla. I say hauled in, but I really wasn't given much of a choice once it was there. They, They kind of requested but it was quite firm that I had to go in and discuss what I had said to doctors about this case so I did I went in I did this big statement um it was the first time I'd ever talked about it in that depth before I sat with a social worker and it was like doing a statement in a guard station so it was very very detailed and in the end they said well thanks for telling us all that but I think you're going to have to go to the guards because we're not going to be able to investigate it. There is a recognition that when it comes to interviewing children who make allegations of sexual abuse or for whom there are such concerns, that the best case scenario involves joint interviewing by Tusla and Angarda Shiokana so that the victim goes through as few interviews as possible. There appear to have been problems in the rollout of this, as there often is when state agencies are asked to cooperate. Though not we note, when it's for something like the Criminal Assets Bureau, which generates money for the state. This joint interviewing should also be best practice for interviewing adults where Tusla might be involved. So then I had to go to the guards and I had to do exactly that again. You know, I had to go and, and do this whole statement again. And it, just, it, it, it was the first time I was really scratching my head about it. Like, what was the point of going to Tusla? Why couldn't I just have gone to the guards then? So there wasn't, it was the first time I realised there wasn't much of a kind of cohesive um, set of rules to go by there. If, if you're dealing with uh, somebody who had to report something under mandate, it was very confusing. Didn't understand why I had to do it twice, you know. But I did, I, you know, I went, uh, I went to the guards. They were fine on the phone initially, but they said, listen, you know, we can't deal with this. We have to get onto the uh, Garda station in the area that the abuse had occurred. So that was down in uh, Tala. Um, And I got a call like six or seven months later. I kind of put it all out of my mind at that stage because I hadn't heard anything back. And I thought, well, okay, it's obviously not urgent. 
But I got a call eventually from a detective from Direct Protective Services, which is something I'd never heard of before. And she explained to me that, you know, they take they take over any sexual crime based cases. So especially with children, but also over 18 as well. And that was, you know, they came to the house. So they were they were fantastic. Actually, I was quite surprised. They were clearly well trained with interviewing people for, for sensitive cases um, and had, I thought had a great understanding of how memory works from when you're a child and, you know, how trauma can re- be re-triggered after another traumatic event years later. And just, you know, I didn't have to explain any of that stuff to them, which was helpful. But at the same time, I still had to go in depth into this, this story of what had happened to me as a child some of it but very graphic and they needed the graphic detail they needed me to be certain about you know things and and confirm how many times something might have happened or how many times I thought it happened and it was tricky it was really hard you know it was really hard um and that was it they 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 went away they also interviewed my mom you know um and other people who would have been around me at that time to see what they might have remembered and we all had a great experience with the detectives themselves but um that was it. Once that kind of thing was over, we didn't hear from them for, for quite a while. It's really heartening to hear Kaylee describe how considerate, professional, educated and compassionate the guardians she dealt with were. This is a vast improvement on how things used to be and suggests that the culture is being overcome. But there's a real frustration for victims about where it's all going. And just before Christmas, I got a, a call from them to say that they'd actually brought in the guy uh, you know an elderly man at this stage um I had no idea that they'd even found him but they they brought him in they questioned him and obviously he said he didn't do anything and that's kind of it that's the end of it you know there's no follow-up for me there's no there's it just kind of seemed a bit pointless at the end of it you know it was my motivation underneath was okay I better speak out because there could be more people you know, there could be other people who have reported him before and my testimony would corroborate their story. You know, that's this is my my non-expert mind working. And I was quite shocked to learn then afterwards that no, nothing I say would ever be linked to anything that anybody else said about him. Um, and I would never know if anybody had said anything else about him. And I just felt like it was all very quite traumatizing. Like it, it, there were months there where it was very difficult the flashbacks and the the nightmares and things that I would have had as a teenager all started again and just that feeling of oh I don't even know what the word is it was it was very present again you know whereas for years I hadn't had to deal with it in my day-to-day life um and it just felt pointless you know and and I understand that the detectives did everything in their remit what they're allowed to do but it just seemed what they were allowed to do was very limited so I kind of, I walked away from him and I said to mom in the end, I had to think about it for a while. And I said, look, maybe that's all that will ever come from this is that he was hauled in for questioning. And, you know, if he's married or has kids, they'll know he was hauled in for questioning. Maybe that's all I'll ever get out of this. Um, but it just, it did, it did feel really empty. You know, it felt really strange. And there's no, there was no, as lovely as the detectives were, there was no pointing me to support services or suggestion of what to do next or you know it was really it's quite a cut cut off thing you know um 
yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm still kind of absorbing it because literally this is just before Christmas. They're gone, and and I don't really know how to feel about it. Well, one thing I have learned is that it's a very common thing. You know, it's it seems to be justice is not really the point. Um, when the detectives are, are questioning it, it's very. I don't know what the point is. I still don't know what the point is. So, you know, I, I've started to look into that myself, into what the guards can actually do, um, the victim services around it, um, and Tusa's baffling involvement in all of this, that they're, it's necessary for them to be involved when actually they don't actually do anything. Um, and there's a lot of holes. There's a lot of holes there, and I don't really understand all the bureaucracy that's there. I don't think a lot of it is necessary and it's definitely not victim-centred. So the investigation into the child sex abuse, you said he was arrested. Did a no. file go to the DPP? No, he wasn't even arrested. He okay. was just um, he was just uh, approached in his home, um, asked to come in for questioning under caution and he was allowed to bring his solicitor, obviously. And they they let him choose the day and let him choose the time. And he went in and he answered their questions and then he went home. And that was it. So, no, it, it wasn't even a case that it would ever go to the DPP. It wasn't even an investigation. It wasn't even um, an arrest. You know, there was no, nothing happened. We discussed this previously with Amy, who was still waiting seven years after reporting her abuse officially to Gardy for an outcome on her case. And it's important to remember what drove Kaylee in making this report. I think with the sexual abuse as a child, I had that uneasy feeling of, well, if I'm quiet, he's I've been quiet for a long time at this stage, it's like 20 something years from the time the last time it happened to to now. And he was in a position where he had access to children. And I'm thinking, maybe if I had said something years ago, other kids might because I, I I have no doubt that he he has done this to other people. That's just my gut instinct. So I think it was kind of a feeling of this is the right thing to do. I need to do this. And also I'm a mom now. What if this happened to my child? You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. And also I think as well that uh, I had tried to, to, to push it down, suppress it for so long that it, and it comes back up then at a moment when it's supposed to be the happier time of your life, having a child and all that stuff. And I thought, you know what, this is time I dealt with this properly. I can't avoid it anymore. So that was much more... I wasn't under any illusion that I would end in conviction. I kind of knew that I wouldn't have um, enough evidence or proper formed memory to really let the guards actually arrest this guy. I wouldn't have had any anything strong, but I wanted to flag him. You know, this guy shouldn't be around kids. So it was very disappointing when I realised that actually nothing I said would have that impact. He wouldn't be flagged. Really that that anything I said was basically in one file and it would never be never be referred to again. You know, even if somebody else came forward or had come forward in the past. And I find that really hard. You know, I find that quite irresponsible because you don't see a pattern with somebody and you, you know, you might let him stay out doing what he's doing much longer than his necessary (laughs) the way it was explained to me too by I can't remember which one it was was one of the investigators was 
there is a focus on the 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 rights of the accused you know that they have to take into account their um their rights you know as someone who's accused to to not have a black mark against their name or things like that unless they're actually convicted with no real link there to the fact that conviction is so unlikely you know even though this did still happen the conviction is so unlikely and conviction can't be the only indicator that this person might be a might be a risk you know 15 years on from her initial attempt to report it Kaylee made the decision to re-report her rape. I'm in awe of anyone who reports a rape at all, but to go back after that first experience is quite incredible. So going back to the guards again, 16 years later, 15 years later, I had that experience in my mind and it was, it took a lot to go back. Um, It was only my experiences with the direct protective services over the child sex abuse that gave me the uh, courage uh, to to go about the rape as well. Because like I said, okay, ultimately they couldn't really do anything constructive about what had happened. But my experience being interviewed by these two female guards, detectives, was very positive, you know, in the context of what I had to report. Um, and I thought, okay, if this is how they're trained now, maybe I can actually report the rape properly and maybe they'll take me more seriously this time. Um, so I did, I, I ended up reporting it. Um, it wasn't direct protective services this time, but it was a specialist in, investigator in Mullingar. I don't know if they just don't have that unit there, but they have they have special investigators or, or expert investigators and they're specially trained. Divisional protective services units have been rolled out over the last number of years. It's just since 2020 that they're operational in every division. But despite the service not being there, Kaylee had a hugely professional experience with the person taking her statement. I got to meet with the woman, the, the investigator, a few times before I actually got delved into what had gone on. And she explained to me that she works with people who've been victims of domestic violence or sexual violence. And she likes to let them get to know her a little bit first rather than coming and sitting down and then saying, right, tell me, tell me about the worst thing that's ever happened to you, you know? And she was very, she was extremely professional, but she was also really soft in another way. Like there was a, um, a gentleness to her. And I mean, you're talking about chalk and cheese from the first guard I had reported to from the same station, you know, 15 years previously. And I just remember thinking, I said to my mom that afternoon, I said, you know what? She's exactly who you want at your kitchen table if you have to report something like this. You feel like you can just tell her all the gory details and you can tell her all the most painful things, but she's she's there to listen to you. You know, she, there, there was that feeling that she was there for the victim. This is our 20th episode of Policed, and it's an absolute joy to be hearing that, to be hearing that those reporting such awful crimes can have such empathic and compassionate experiences. And I mean, that was extraordinary. And they did. She came back um, uh, after a couple of visits. She came back with a colleague. and It was a six hour statement. It's six hours solid from start to finish. Every single detail. And now this one I could remember an awful lot more. I was much older. It had much, much more devastating impact on my life um, and 
obviously I'd been thinking about it for a decade and a half. So it was very, very there. And it was much more, it was because of the trauma that reignited after my daughter was born. It was like it had just happened again. So it didn't feel like that long. And I gave her every, everything I could possibly think of, every name, every, every detail of the room I was in, everything I could. And nothing I said to her, uh, I, I wasn't made feel like anything I said to her was irrelevant or silly or, you know, everything matters, everything. And some of the questions she asked, you know, I was thinking, oh, wow, she even wants to know about this. You know, there was a genuine, like, let's get this whole picture together. She left. I was shaky. I was exhausted. But I felt like, wow, she's after getting the absolute best statement out of me that I possibly could have given. She was fantastic. It's wonderful hearing that confidence that Kaylee has given and done her best, felt heard and believed. The relationship I had with those individual guards was very important. The investigator, I think because I got to know her a little bit more, I think I felt like it was in good hands and it was such a sensitive story to me that that was very important, much more important than I maybe realised it would be. I think it's a shame it was passed to a different detective who met me briefly for five minutes. I didn't have any sort of feeling of confidence in the person. I'm sure he was really good at his job. I'm sure he did every due diligence, but I just, it, I don't know who he is. You know, he never sat down at my kitchen table and, and, and talked to me about what was going on. He was just handed a file from somebody who had got to know me and deemed me credible, you know? So, um, but I, I was quite disappointed, I think, to, to have built a relationship of trust with an investigator only to never have any contact with her again. You know, I, these kind of stories are really hard to share, whether it's something that happened really recently or something that happened decades ago. It's, it's so important to who, to, to the, the impact it's had on you is huge and, and really personal and really important that somebody understands that. So, so I found that really kind of dehumanizing to a point, you know, there were, I was just a name. Uh, I was just a, a file number and he didn't have any idea of what my home life was like, which the other investigator had gotten to know. She had gotten to know my daughter, you know, things like that. She got to sit down and see what my home felt like and what kind of, per- get an idea of what kind of person I was, you know, so yeah, that that was that was disappointing. Um, and also I had a family liaison. No, I had a, a victim liaison officer assigned to me too, and I did br- meet her briefly. But there was nothing she could really do. You know, she was very friendly, she was very nice, all that kind of stuff. But I I didn't get the point of it except for a box ticking exercise. You know, I did go and meet her at the local guard station. She came out to meet me to just formally introduce herself, but. She made it pretty clear that there's nothing she can really do. And even t- even filling me in on 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 how the case was proceeding and things, she she couldn't tell me anything. So I, it was very odd. You know, it, it was I didn't understand what was the point. You know, even when I had questions and rang her, she couldn't answer them. It was it was it was it did definitely feel like a, a box ticking exercise there, you know, to say that, because obviously like when you're on the Garda website, it does have a section about victim victims rights and things like that and that is one of the things um that you should have if you've reported a crime and you're the victim of it you should have a victim liaison officer you know but but it really did just feel like procedure can i ask a bit about that updating because that's a, you know the, the guards have put a lot of emphasis on this on keeping victims updated on the progress of investigations 
at what points would you have received updates from the guards? Um, well, not being able to give you specific dates, but mm-hmm. um, I made the official six-hour statement for the rape in June last year. And then it was the end of November when I got a call from the detective just to say that they were interviewing him. And that was it. So that's the only update I had until he rang me again to say the DPP weren't taking the case. I really would have hoped for for more idea of what was happening. Like, I didn't get any heads up that he was about to be brought in for question and I was told afterwards. Um, like in the in the meantime of all this, I had death, a death threat from his brother that I was also dealing with the guards with. So just knowing that he was going to get called in for question, it would have been important to me just to know how involved the guards were there. Like, was this having an impact on him or was, was I still at risk? Or just knowing, you know, because they're quite a reactive family. So I was worried when he'd go in for questioning that that would spin things off again, you know, from from their point of view, that they they would react and, you know, I was worried for my my safety, my child's safety, my husband's safety. And there just was no heads up. There was no, even when they rang me to say he's been brought in for questioning, he was in there today and we questioned him and he denied everything. That was it. That, there was no, you know, <laughs> there was nothing else about it. And I did ask some questions and he couldn't answer them for me. So some of the questions would be, who else have you interviewed that I named in my statement? What happens next? It's very little. Did they interview? I mean, you said you you told your friends on Stephen's day. Did did they speak to any of them? I don't know. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to assume, but I don't know. She has reported the threats to the police, and the guard just didn't take me seriously. And and it was it was crazy. I got the death threat on Instagram, and I. Had, when I went around, I went around with my husband to the guard station to report this. The guard didn't even understand what Instagram was. I, I was trying to explain to this guy who had no idea what social, like he doesn't have a Facebook account at all. He's an older guard. And I'm trying to explain to him what it is to receive a private message on Instagram. And it's it's just hard to like, oh, the energy it took just to get that far. Anyway, it was very frustrating. Um, since then, I have got more. They did close that case because they couldn't prove it came from him. Since then, I did actually manage to get the proof that the the death threat came from him. And he just refuses to come back to me, really. He's not interested. The rape is not going to be prosecuted. Ultimately, it gets handed over to a detective. They do the due diligence and investigating. The DPP says we're not going to prosecute. That's nothing to do with the detective herself or the investigator herself. But that is the way it goes in this country. So few um, of these cases are picked up by the DPP, especially when there's no physical evidence. And obviously there's no physical evidence. While this is not to do with the police, we absolutely need to keep a tight eye on any suggestion that a prosecution might not go ahead because of a lack of physical evidence. Physical evidence of a rape generally taken from examinations in sexual assault treatment units will only be available if the victim is examined within 48 to 72 hours of the rape. And even then, there won't always be physical evidence. So that will be hugely limiting criteria for prosecutions. I, like, I think back to myself at that age, 
after what happened to me with the whole, the shock of it, I think, I think shock is the best word as well. I don't think it ever even occurred to me that I should go to the hospital. I mean, I had bruising and I had problems. Um, I had, you know, problems from the force, but it just wouldn't have occurred to me to go to the hospital. I, I, I don't remember ever being told that even growing up that, you know, that's what you should do if you, I, it just wouldn't have occurred to me. These are system-wide problems. I think what I've learned, what I know now from, from dealing with it myself and also my work with other people and the people that I, I work alongside is that the justice system, the guards, uh, the DPP, the courts, they're not actually equipped properly to deal with any sort of sexual violence cases. It's almost impossible to get justice, even with an excellent statement, even with excellent recollection, even with an excellent investigator. It's so hard, you know, to get any sort of justice. And really the reality of it is these people, these criminals, these people who have caused us harm overwhelmingly walk free with no stain on their record, you know? Even if another person comes forward and says about the same man that he also attacked me or he also assaulted me, my statement has nothing to do with them. It won't be linked, it won't be, you know. It seems like a massive hole, you know? It, it, it's, it's a huge loophole. It leaves these people who have learned that they can get away with violent behaviour in the way of victim, future victims, really. It just allows them to, to continue to do what they want to do. They know there aren't any consequences. If you read any newspaper, any article about any sort of sexual violence in, in this country, you know that you are most likely going to get away with it if you do anything yourself. You know, your reputation won't even really be that harmed. Nobody, nothing happens to you. You know, the victim takes it all on. And again, even getting the call from about the DPP not taking it, there was no guidance on where to go with, with for myself afterwards. There was no, well, look, here's some support services. Not even, you know, here's the rape crisis centre number, something as basic as that. There was no anything. There was no chance to appeal. There was nothing. So you're really left, you're, you're exposed, you're raw, you're exhausted. And then you kind of left wondering, well, what was that all about, <laughs> you know? So improved interactions and ways of taking statements is hugely important, but it's not the end of the road. There is more work to be done in this space. Indeed, most recent data suggests that despite these policing improvements, detection rates for sexual assaults may be lower than 10%. The meaning of detection has been changed in recent years. It used to be where Gardaí believed they'd identified the responsible individual, but it now means where some kind of proceedings has been initiated. There are a couple of exceptions to that, like where the juvenile diversion program is being used or if the suspect has died. But by and large, that's what it means. It's very worrying that just one in 10 complaints leads to criminal proceedings. That number may get higher over time, but it's still very, very low. Given that the vast majority, around 90% of victims, know their offender, this raises real questions about the quality investigations and the standards required to even commence criminal proceedings. The questions of securing convictions, even if you do commence those criminal proceedings, is another story again. So, you know, my experience with the guards, it's strange. Individual guards can have a massive impact on how you feel about reporting something, really. I mean, the, the very first guard, like I said, she had a massively negative impact on me. 
the one since then had a very positive impact on me. But it shouldn't be left to individual guards to, to you know, what kind of experience you're going to have. She's currently under investigation by GSOC. And, and they did, when I reported, um, again, I reported the incident with, with that guard when I reported the rape. Because one of the questions was obviously, well, why didn't you report? And I said, I did, you know. Um, they investigated and they they founded the investigation. She's under tribunal now. She's currently suspended. So we'll see what happens with that. It's very powerful to hear from Kaylee the changes which have occurred in policing sexual violence. I'm going to be careful about what I say about her treatment in 2004 because a disciplinary tribunal is pending and we don't want to interfere with that process in any way. Kaylee has described so clearly what the impact of that response was for her and what it could have meant had she been treated differently. For every case that goes uninvestigated, not only is there the trauma for that victim, but there are other potential victims that the state fails to protect. It's really heartening to hear how much better she has been treated in recent years, how she's been listened to, heard, empathised with and engaged with sensitively. This is how the taking of statements should always be. But that's not enough. We need to ask very serious questions about why the detection levels are so low. Are there problems with how police investigations are done? The taking of a statement from a victim is just one part of the process. Are there problems elsewhere? Or are there problems with the standards required to prosecute? Victims of sexual violence are being failed. RCNI figures tell us that 98% of offenders are male. This is a gendered crime and we have to ask whether that's part of the problem. I'm angry about this. Women like Kaylee deserve better. Women, men, boys, girls, non-binary persons deserve better. We all deserve better and we should all be very angry about this. Thank you for trusting us with your experience, Kaylee, And I hope we've done justice by it. If you've been affected in any way by what we've talked about today, you can call the Rape Crisis National 24-hour free helpline at 1800 77 8888 for support and information on options. As ever, a big thanks to my producers Tony Groves and Brian from Groves Ahead 